From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today on the show, I'm having a conversation with Omaha City Council candidate for District 3, Cami Watkins. It's not just, I'm tired of hearing, we can't do this, or here's why we can't and why this is a problem, and this is why our solution is not to do anything with it at all. Let's lay out the problem, and then let's figure out how we can do it, and then work our way through those barriers. New to the political arena, Cami Watkins is running to be on Omaha City Council to address the problems that need fixing but never seem to change. She talks about her childhood passion for singing, her community activism, and her vision for Omaha's future. Stick around for the conversation after the break right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And today we have a conversation. This is the final political interview that I'm doing before the election itself this year. And it's a local one. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in federal politics and to not be able to see that it's actually much more, it's much simpler to get change to happen on a city level than on a country level. It's easier to get things passed. It's easier to see the specific problem and to even be be directly involved in the solution to that problem. Cami Watkins is somebody who got tired of seeing things not change around her. She got tired of seeing everybody sort of agree that these problems exist, but running into this problem where there doesn't seem to be political will to fix these problems. So she's gotten herself involved and she wants to fix them by joining the Omaha City Council. She's running to represent District 3, and I talked to her today about her childhood, her passion for singing, and her interesting, very human approach to fixing Omaha's problems. Here is our conversation. It's funny when you talk to political people, which I've been doing a lot of this year, um, there are ones who they give a lot of speeches and it's, it's like once they develop that skill, it's very easy if I ask a question about anything that they can talk in a very organized and you know professional sounding way. And then as they're talking, they think of some other topic and go on from there and there and there. And then like 15 minutes later, they sort of end somewhere that's, I don't know where exactly we got to that. So I mean, but then you get other people who give just a normal question and answer. And so I, I guess I'll, I'll just start there because I'm curious. So one of the things I think that actually inhibits people from running for offices uh, for offices, they feel like because certain politicians can talk a certain way on their feet and sort of present themselves that very specific way that political figures do, uh, that's something where that takes some time to get used to doing that, right? To be able to you know switch to that code, right? So I mean, how has it been for you to sort of put on that persona not that it's you know persona suggests maybe there's a falsehood to it I don't mean it that way but you know to be yeah. that person what is that what is that what's that been like for you you know like there's certain moments where I get into it and I'm like you're failing at this cami <laughs> like um because the there's so many people when I hear and that have been doing this kind of politics and being a politician and I always kind of cringe a little bit when people are like, so like you're a politician I'm like ew no no I'm not like I feel like I'm a person I see myself as a community organizer. And so like getting in front of folks and talking to them about issues and really helping folks gather them into the work that I'm doing that I feel more authentic and natural about, but it's rare that I go in front of large groups of people and just talk about myself. 
So that's where I'm like, oh, you're failing at this. Like folks say, so tell me who you are. And I'm like, ah, I am Cammy. I am a native. Like I never, I instantly go into like free sweaty mode. And <laughs> it's hard for me to remember like who I am and why people would want to vote for me or even know who my name is. So yes, I'm currently not doing really well at the impromptu, like tell me about you. Uh, but then the moment that I get a chance to talk about the issues I care about, then I am able to relax. But yeah, so I, it's 50-50. It really depends <laughs> on where I'm at in what space. Were you an extrovert as a kid? Uh, no, extremely shy. I am totally an introverted. I'm an extroverted introvert. Okay. Uh, and so anytime I've taken the that test, I'm always like, right. It depends on how I feel that day, but I am in the middle uh, but as a kid, if you were to ask like my brother or my mom, I was extremely shy. I had a horrible time making friends because I was just never really outgoing and talking. My brother was really the big extroverted. Everybody knew him. It's this, and we are only 13 months apart, my older brother, BJ, and I. And so all of my friends were his friends. That's the only way that I made friends in high school. And it really was all the way up until like my junior year of high school when I slightly started to come out of the shell. Now, here's the really weird thing about this. I was into singing. So I've always been um, a singer in music. And so getting in front of a stage and singing in front of people, I have um, no problems doing that. But to talk in front of folks and then even to do one-on-one -on -one singing, I won't do it. But like, so people are like, I don't understand. How can you be nervous? I've seen you on a stage and like I did talent shows in elementary school. But if it came to like being in groups and talking to people, I'm horrible at it. So did oh, you, I was. I'm better now. <laughs> did you put yourself in a position where you were singing in front of groups? Like did you, were you in like, choirs or bands or anything? Yeah. So I show choir all day long. I went to Omaha South. So we were the ambassadors and they're still rocking it out these days. But um, I actually first started singing when I was like five years old. And I distinctly remember my first little solo in church. So we did, um, I, my dad was military. So we, I, while I was born in Omaha, we moved to Texas from like the time that I was like maybe six months till about seven when my parents got divorced and we moved back here. But like the little church that we went to uh, there they had a choir and I think I remember asking my mom like I want to sing in the choir so they put me in it and then basically everyone got a solo and so it wasn't really a solo but they had like three kids that sang the solo feature together and I was always the shortest I'm only five two um, but I've always been the littlest kid and so they gave me the microphone to hold and then they took it from me because I only held it in front of myself instead of sharing it with the other children. And that was my first solo. And then every, after that, I just always sang and I had all of, and I didn't, re, I just thought everybody sang. So it didn't seem like anything special, but I started having these music teachers that were, that kept saying to me, Cammie, you, you actually have a really nice voice. And I thought, okay, that's super sweet. And, but then would instantly get embarrassed that someone noticed or could hear me. Um, <laughs> and then I, auditioned for um, it locally, it was the mini treble singers. And I think they still exist now, but that was about fifth grade that they would start taking singers. So I was in that group from in like junior high. And then in high school, I really got into doing theater and then actually ended up going to college on a vocal performance scholarship, which was 
a full ride. It's the full reason I was able to get into school and fell in love with opera. Oh, wow. In high school. And so I went to focus on, um, I have a, my minor is in vocal performance and it was doing opera. So was that like an outlet for you then, since you were introverted, all that emotion could kind of pour out and, you know, you were expressing everything that you weren't saying? Yes. Like the two things that make me happy when I'm sad is singing and ice cream. Uh, so like instantly, because I, like, that was always my refuge. Like I would go in my room in really any type of music, but because I wasn't interacting with people, like music has always been a theme and I wasn't aware until I started talking to other folks that like not everybody has a song running through their head at all times. And each year, like there's sometimes these reoccurring songs. And so I realized those are like my theme songs for the year, the ones that keep coming to me and things like that. And so I, music really does kind of shape the, the shape, the sphere or where my head's at and kind of is such a soothing moment for me, but a great expressive way mm-hmm. for me as well. What are the songs for this year? Um, so the song that like really started speaking to me, especially when I started thinking about the campaign was Pink's Wild Hearts, uh, which she had written for the women's suffragette. Yeah uh movie and that one just super super speaks to me so do you sing at any of your uh campaign events i guess there's probably not a lot of uh, campaign events right? <laughs> you know my campaign uh team is like you know that eventually we're you're probably gonna have to sing or something i was like yeah i'm thinking about it so we'll see i feel like we can't get around that i, I may do like some karaoke thing for fun or something. It, it feels awkward and weird for me to even think about it, but it's like, all right, suck it up. Cause it's something I, I love to do. And it, I, I feel like it would be weird for me not to share that part of me sure. with people. Well, that's, that's, you know, the truest expression of you, right? I mean, so, to some extent. <laughs> it is, but then like super nerve wracking in front of small groups. Uh, but then also like one of the things that's important for me as a person who did go to school is like, we have to pay our performers like too much folks are just like oh well why don't you just draw for me or sing for me it's like we don't ask an architect to just like design a building for us but we expect that of our performers and so for me it's really important to be like okay like if i choose to sing and support for whatever reasons i want to do that because i choose to but like it shouldn't be something that others demand mm. of me and i did have like this weird experience once where I was out with friends and these folks were like, oh, you're a singer. And these guys were just like, sing for us, sing the national anthem. And I was like, no, A, I don't know who you are. And B, I I'm, I like spent thousands of dollars in school for this like degree to, for talent. And then they just started like deciding that they were going to throw money at me because it's like, I need, I get paid for singing. They're like, oh, well then we'll just pay. And that like felt super dirty and weird for me. Yeah. And luckily I had friends that were like, nope, she said no. So let's respect what she said. <laughs> I, it, it, as you're talking, it makes me think that there aren't a lot of people who study the arts who then go into any kind of political sphere. So I, I imagine that does give you a different perspective as opposed to like most people are have some kind of legal you know, lawyerly training or business training, mm-hmm. right? Kind of the opposite, right? So you're, you're using the different part of the brain. Uh, has that been notable for you? You know, I think it's been that way for my entire like my entire career in the spaces that I go into. Uh, but I don't think it's odd that those of us with a theater or a music background are probably in these political realms. 
and in social justice work as a whole, like I really see myself coming to this as a natural progression from the work that I've been doing as a community organizer and then like working in housing and then working with family advocacy and all of these different pieces. And in the job that I do now, my main focus has been working with municipalities and kind of states and systems work around how do we start to change the inequities in our communities to um, really start to write those paths or like look at the opportunities and the possibilities that we have for change. So I think the adaptability and the flexibility that I gained from music and theater and just the inclusion that comes from an industry that in, inevitably could be really exclusive. I've been fortunate in the spaces that I've been able to practice and sing in to see how the value of really collaboration and working with people. So that actually, I would say it has been a huge benefit for me because there's no part of my life that didn't happen where I have to work with others that I have no idea. And I have little choice on who my co-stars are, you yeah. know? I mean, theater, it's a lot of people and you have to get to what that sort of, you have to get to a comfort level with all of them and you have to figure things out very quickly. So yeah, I mean, I guess that does make sense. Maybe we should have Mitch McConnell do a play. <laughs> That'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Cami Watkins, who is running to represent District 3 on Omaha's City Council. So when you're studying this stuff, I mean, you're probably not thinking when you're younger, all right, I'm going to get into community organizing and politics, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. tell me a little bit, how, how did you go from studying the arts to moving that direction of this very direct work and, you know, fixing things? Yeah, so I think my, my mom, I contribute a lot of like where I ended up in my life. Like she was a legal secretary for the majority of her working career. She retired early, um, but still does like secretarial work. And from working at the U.S. Attorney's Office when we were here in Omaha, she always did, they always had like different community service and volunteer projects and she would always drag us along. Um, and I was definitely a mama's girl and so rather than sit at home because I didn't have any friends to hang out with, I would go with her. And so I remember doing like graffiti cleanups and like the corporate cup run and all of these, like the um, breast cancer walks and all those different things. So this like kind of idea of service and giving back to other people was ingrained in me in a really young age. And so then as I got to college, the groups and the individuals that I started hanging out with um, they had these social and service groups. And so it was part of like creating your friend group. So it's similar to sororities and fraternities, but those were banned at the college that I went to. Um, but we had to have this community service component. And through that, like I had some amazing exposure to experiences with women on campus and sexual assault. And then um, the breast cancer awareness work, but then LGBTQ IA2S plus work um, through some of the leadership programs in the college, while it was this tiny little college called Cornell College of Mount Vernon, Iowa, the, it's a small little liberal arts school. The number of like really community-minded and community-focused people there is huge. And I, through the music world, I saw that there is a connection for us to support this work through our art. And so my senior year, I was doing a leadership program where they actually gave us the opportunity 
to pair and shadow with someone who we thought might be um, the, a future career path. And I always thought I was going to come back to Omaha and be an arts administrator and go and work for Opera Omaha. And that was my career. And I had interned with them over the summers when I came back. But then I also had this passion for psychology and people and interpersonal relationships, which I gained while I was at, the, uh, at Cornell. And I decided, well, let me see this other side. Let me see what this like youth in community and family services could look like. And there was this small new nonprofit that was an after-school program for queer youth in Iowa City. And I went and started shadowing the executive director there and then watching the journey of these kids and seeing that like in 2001 and 2002, young like high school and junior high age kids that were braving coming out in Iowa was life-changing for me. And then hearing from their parents who connected, who were like, my child is coming out. And I told the rest of the family, if you can't love them, then I can't be part of your family anymore. Like that changed my life. And I knew in that moment, this is the work I need to be doing. I need to be helping and being a part of creating these spaces. So I actually ended up working with some of my friends that at the time were doing a show of Rocky Horror Picture Show because um, this small nonprofit was trying to raise money and they were struggling to do that. So I reached out to one of my best friends who was in the Rocky Horror Show and said, would you all be willing to do like a free benefit concert to raise money for this group of kids? And they were like, absolutely. And like that was in that moment where I had the convergence of the two worlds and I knew I could do both. I could always still support both. Well, there's there's kind of interesting, uh, I feel like it's a dilemma a lot of artists go through, which is to some, there's some part, maybe it's the stereotype of artists that when you're performing in some way or you're creating something, you're not actively helping the community. And I mean, there's certainly, there's ways you can do fundraising, but then also, I mean, just surely to some extent as well, the expression, like you're talking, you know, just your ability to express yourself, people to see you, to identify with you or whoever it might be on, whether it's a stage or whatever, you know, form it might be. I mean, did you have to navigate sort of like, am I helping through art? Do I want to do something beyond art? Was that sort of a struggle within you? You know, um, I think being a black woman interested in opera, <laughs> uh, that concept of representation matters mm -hmm. was always present. It was always present for me. Like um, there, I was always balancing this um, concept of like, okay, well, do you fit the picture? Do you fit the mold? And in opera, I found so much freedom in that, that there wasn't always it or at least in the places where I got to perform and then the artists that I looked up to like Jesse Norman was so huge for me to see and then I started to see how um the younger students like while Mount Vernon was this tiny tiny town their professors were they're very like multiracial there and they had kids that were growing up there and there's this one little girl in particular her mother was an anthropology professor but she um, also did music and like for her to see me in lead roles on the stage, regardless of the show was so powerful mm. for her. And so I think being responsible in that, the shows that we choose, the roles that we take, but sometimes even just showing up in that role can mean so much because it shows another kid that this is possible. 
So like when I sing, I have friends that are music teachers and if they have opportunities where they want to talk to their kids, I'll come out and do it. And like to just see the kids' faces, especially like little black and brown kids, to see what, like this woman is singing this way. And I know that that's what made the difference for me. Like Carmen was the first opera I saw and they had a um, black woman locally here doing the lead role of Carmen. And to see that opened up the possibility. So I think there's that responsibility, that inherent responsibility that comes from that representation but then also what's the art that we support and push and call for, especially when you're in an influential place where you can start to say mm-hmm. like, these are the pieces and these are the roles or these are the things that I'm going to support. This is the message I want to make sure is getting portrayed about the communities, um, whether it be from disability lens or from a race lens. And so, I mean, <laughs> do you still perform at all or did you, did that sort of end at some point? So I retired from the opera in 2017. I had actually been in the Opera Maha Chorus for 12 years after I graduated. And then I decided, okay, well, I'll do, I'm going to take a year off. And that did not really happen. I got this like random opportunity to do a little mini tour with uh, Zach Brown Band for like, we did three performances, um, just singing back up by random circumstances. So I did, did that. And then I'll do a little, I've done, um, a few shows for the Rose and um, the Blue Barn. And I actually then last year fully took off. It was like, all right, you're officially retiring. You're not singing anymore. And then I missed it. And so then I auditioned for a show at the Rose again and got in. But because of COVID, we had to cancel the production. And so right now I am not, this is, will be probably the second year that I've not sung or performed at all. And so, uh, I enjoy my free time. I they used to have like that meme that said, it's like, what's your relationship status? And it was like single, um, divorce, whatever. Sorry, I can't. I'm in a, I have rehearsal. And that was literally like, that is my life status. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I can't. I have rehearsal. <laughs> well, so, I mean, essentially has that time been filled up now with running for office, right? You're not, you're not singing. So you are taking a political position in Omaha. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, I don't have anything else going on. So I might as well just run for <laughs> office. Um, so yeah, I, I am definitely a person that feels like, um, idle hands uh, and I need to be busy. Mm-hmm. And work is obviously extremely like busy. We've been working from home in my office since like March 13 um, or working remotely. And I just always feel called to be doing more. Like when I see that situations or where I see things where I'm just like, why are people not asking the right questions? Why are they not pushing forward or even just trying and like, the sometimes that complacency that we can fall into in this city becomes and at someone that grew up here like I get it and I don't think that we recognize how much we just settle for we're good uh, when we could really be amazing or innovative if we just took that extra step to ask those questions to do something different and I kind of told myself all right you're not going to complain if you're not willing to step up and do something about it. Like, cause there's so many circumstances behind decisions that people make. And if you're not willing to step up and be the leader to do it, then you can't complain. And then I got tired of not complaining. Um, and so I said, all right, I think you, you have to decide where do you want to step up and lead? And I really 
for me, it was important to do local. Like I have zero aspirations for doing a like federal office or something large like that. Like I feel like the real work happens on the municipal and the local county state levels. And so then I just had to decide, well, what should that be? And city council became the thing. I'm talking today with Cami Watkins, who is running to represent District 3 on Omaha's City Council. We'll be back with the rest of the conversation after this quick break. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm talking today with Cami Watkins, who is running to represent District 3 on Omaha's City Council. Before I started interviewing a bunch of political people, my assumption was it's sort of a gradual build, but it seems like everybody just has some moment where something clicks in their head and you're like, all right, well, I'm committed now. I, whatever I just saw, that's it. My life is different. Yeah. What was it for you? Yeah. <laughs> it, for me, it was a trip to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which when I tell some folks about like, Cleveland, I'm like, I know, look, only thing I knew about Cleveland, Ohio was the Drew Carey show. And then after I went and visited, I had to take back every bad thing that I thought about Cleveland. Um, well, like, it, which was not much. But I went there. So there's a program that we do at Inclusive Communities where I work full time uh, called Lead Diversity, which we launched in 2019. And I, our partner affiliate organization in Cleveland, Ohio, actually started the program 18 years ago. So I went to go see one of their tours or one of their sessions to just prepare for bringing it here. And the session I happened to go to was their tour of their city and looking at um, the, they called it Cleveland crossing the bridge or crossing the river. And so it's kind of like the two dynamic sides. And I would liken that to like Omaha East and West. Mm -hmm. And we went and the two people leading their trolley tour were city council members. And I was just blown away by the work that these two gentlemen were doing in their cities. And while Cleveland city proper is a little smaller than Omaha proper, they have 21 city council members which allows them to really have these very um, specific districts and neighborhoods. And one of the city council members literally knew every single person um, in this one like huge stretch of houses, very residential dense area. And he was pointing out the houses and the plans and the decisions that he was making had every single one of those people in mind. And I just thought like, I would love that. I would love to see that in our city where I've got a city council member that is so in tuned with each individual and the needs and that while he may not be able to do everything that every single person wants, like he has a relationship with them where they trust him. Like he talked about, he created these like sustainability districts where any new buildings or developments had to be to a portion extent lead lead certified. They also were tagged to a transportation um, so that we were having not only certification and sustainability in the building, but then sustainability and transportation. He had these arts districts that were set up in areas to make sure that you were also bringing in and supporting 
the lower income youth and people with disabilities and all abilities plays, then the more kind of area that's becoming more desirable, which was right on the river, he was making sure that we weren't having, they were doing infill development, but that it was keeping in mind the aesthetics of the community while also making sure that it was mixed income. So he made it a requirement that any new multifamily development had to have at least 10%, it was like 10 to 20% um, units that were affordable housing. And I just was like, just wow. Like I couldn't believe how intentional while still acknowledging the uniqueness of each of the different parts of the community, but definitely things that were so community-centered and community-led. So somebody where it's sort of like you're able to see, okay, why don't why aren't we doing these things, right? And so nobody was doing it already, and so you, you sort of had to be the one to bring it to Omaha then? It was just like, okay, so I don't understand where's the, the barrier, and most folks are like, it's just the political will. Like we're, there's very little that we have all the answers. We know what we can do. We have examples, but there just doesn't seem to be the driver or the push to get it done. And I started talking to folks from like large company investor companies to like our homelessness services individuals. And they all had the same thing to say about, we need to address the housing inequity in our community. Like every single person is acknowledging that something needs to be done, but for some reason it wasn't happening. And so I just thought we don't have those activist leaders, political leaders right now. And I don't know where the pushback is because when I hear super wealthy investors in our city saying, yeah, I've kind of talked to our mayor about, we need to do something about this housing here because it's it's reaching a precipice in which it's a huge problem. Why are we not doing anything? And so, you know, you reach out to your folks and say, hey, here are my concerns. And then you don't get a response back. And so that push of, okay, I think it's me. Like there's other people that can as well, but it also, it could be me. What was the holdup, do you think? Why weren't some of these things gaining traction? I feel like we get really caught on why we can't do things as opposed to, okay, let's first think about what we can do and then we can address the barriers. That's part of the strategic planning. We hear, I like I still have not gotten really solid answers. One of the things is, well, for developers, it costs just as much to build an expensive, um, like a luxury housing as it does affordable. And so where's the advantage for them? And we're not gonna be able to find developers that are gonna wanna build affordable housing. And my thought there is, why is affordable housing have to be built by a different person? Like there, isn't it, wouldn't you rather have housing that your units, the whole goal is that the units are all filled than to have empty units. Like that's the loss of money. There's still gotta be a loss somewhere there. And knowing that if we're built like the need for quality, decent, affordable housing and that affordable or even workforce housing. And like, that's the big thing for me is that we don't really even having, have a lot of quality stock that the median income of Omaha's, which is under 60,000, it's about $60,000 that they can afford at that 30% threshold. So like, just because I have less money doesn't mean I deserve less luxury. So why can't you just build quality housing, period, and make it affordable? And that the cost savings in terms of having 100% filled units are there. And if the, in, in talking with some uh, um, different folks about, you know, we have to acknowledge like landlords, there's a responsibility there. We need good quality landlords. 
but also there is to an extent like certain populations that just don't have the knowledge of what being a good tenant means. But that doesn't mean that, that just means there's an education problem on both sides. So how do we make sure that we're just providing people with information of what we need? What are you looking for? And try to mitigate some of those concerns. Like there, it's not just, I'm tired of hearing we can't do this or here's why we can't and why this is a problem. Let's, and this is why our solution is not to do anything with it at all. Let's lay out the problem and then let's figure out how we can do it and then work our way through those barriers. You Because you because these things aren't happening, there seems to be almost this reverence for status quo for the most part. And so when, I mean, on the council, on the city council, you'd have to figure out a way to persuade those who are not as interested in some of these problems or not as interested in these specific solutions. So, I mean, how do you go about making these changes go from, you know, okay, you can identify some plans that you would have how do you get everybody on board and does it modify from there or what's that like? Yeah. So I think like right now, some of the groundwork that we're laying is that we have finally had um, council member Festerson mentioned in a city council meeting a few weeks ago um, that perhaps we consider using TIF as a mechanism to increase our affordable housing. Now there's lots of different things around how TIF positives and negatives, but this is a start. So there are several housing advocates that we've been having conversations with him, and this is something that's starting. Now, these are things that housing advocates have been asking for, that we already have this mechanism that is tax or TIF tax incremental financing that the city has to grant to developers in order to, like, it's already something that people have to apply for. It's not a natural given. So in many cities like Chicago, they already have a requirement of a certain percentage of any development that gets TIF funding has to be set up, set aside for affordable housing. And there's different ways that the financing is done around that, um, it, depending on the place. So we have some of the structure in place that we could already start to create some of these requirements. It's just taking the time to actually investigate it. I'm excited that Councilmember Festerson is looking at this now but people have brought this up for years. So I don't know where the delay is. Could it be we're in an election year um, and everybody's talking about equity? Uh, perhaps, whatever the reasoning is, I'm so glad that they're talking about it. So that's like one of those ways. There's lots of little mechanisms that already exist. And as I learn more and get more involved in the ways in which the city can impact, I think we'll start to find that there's lots of other pieces, but we know that sometimes you won't know what those moving parts are, or those little pieces are processes that can help make something move happen until you're sitting at the table. And I just feel like we need people sitting at the table that are willing to ask those questions and not just get stuck in the status quo. Yeah. And, uh, people, I feel like, especially in this year, when I've been talking to a lot of people running for federal office, uh, even when I was telling people I was going to interview you today, they were saying, wait, okay, so what does the city council do? You know, so it's, even though we live in this city and even though we can get really into elections every couple, every four years, it feels like there's, there's less emphasis than there should be on exactly the reason why you wanted to stay local, which is, no, there's actually a lot of change that can happen at a local level that would impact you directly. And you could even be a part of it uh, more easily than you can to get federal legislation passed. So, I mean, do you find that has, has running for this office sort of, has part of that been for you just educating people on their ability to actually see Omaha improve directly and what exactly the city council can do to make that happen? Absolutely. Like, and I think that's part of some of the things that we could do better 
in these local offices is actually say what we do because uh, it was interesting on the council, the city council hearing on the 20th today to, that um, one of the council members kind of was saying, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about this recycling bid and there's like all of these things on the consent agenda that are all taxpayer dollars and we don't even really talk through that. And we've spent so much time. And I was like, I'm, I'm confused as to why you're upset <laughs> that people are taking an interest in being engaged in a part of their city's processes. And if you would like us to start pulling out all those items from the consent agenda and talking about each of them, I'm sure we could arrange for that to happen. Like we want, but people aren't as engaged because we aren't really taking the time to let them be truly informed about how important our recycling, our trash, everything that goes into that city budget is decided on by the mayor, but then the final approval comes through our city council zoning, like what's able to be done. I've been doing lots of reading around like strong cities and smart design and looking at the history of our city. I think it's so important for us to recognize like, how did we get here? How did some of these policies or laws or things come into place? But then also what's the possibility in the future look of things that we can do and kind of melding the two of those to just be more cognizant because I want to have a well-rounded picture when I actually get all the information in front of me. Like I'm a super high structure person, but I also love the kind of visionary um, things of like, let's think big, let's think futuristic, and then let's make this implementable. Being able to have input from the community members, because I will never expect to be an expert on all of these things. Like I just won't. And I don't think anybody should ever expect to, but also we don't have to. That's the beauty of being um, a community representative and holding public office is that we have people all around the city with knowledge and expertise in these different areas. So if I do a better job of educating others on here's what we're talking about and here's what we need your input in your experience, whether it be lived experience, academic or policy, help us make the best decision. And it may not be the decision that you specifically like, but it's absolutely going to be influenced by or taken part your perspectives. Now, it's we're almost in a time though where expert opinion becomes almost politicized, right? So, I mean, do, do you find that is that something you have to navigate? Where I mean, you know, like sustainability is one of the things that you talk about. It's on your mm-hmm. site a lot, right? So, that is something that I, I never really understand why exactly that's as politicized as it is, but it does sort of become that way where it's like you know, okay, now you hate cows the second you talk about sustainability, right? <laughs> So, I mean, is that a line you have to figure out how to walk, especially in a place like Omaha? It's part of one of the reasons. So I'm running as an independent and I've been an independent. And so it's one of those things where someone did ask you, they're like, well, so how are you going to balance like that we politicize? It's like, I didn't politicize this issue. You did. Um, So at the end of the day, I have to be authentic to my values and just be rooted in that. And to say, look, I can understand and but also in the work that I do which is diversity, equity, inclusion. Part of this is it's about all of us. Like all of us are part of this. So I utilize the different skills that I've gained, which is one, all right, I can have a conversation with you and have completely polar opposite beliefs. And I have to often reframe for people when they think, oh, well, this is a political issue and I don't want to, I was like, no, here's what we're talking about at the heart of it. And I often go to, what do you want? What's important for you? What do you value? Okay, here's 
what this piece that I'm talking about, when I talk about sustainability, here's what I'm talking about. So especially, and I think I'm lucky because I've been organizing on environmental issues. I've been organizing on issues around poverty my whole life. So I've always had to talk to people about and bring them around to understanding this is the lens that I'm bringing to this. So it's not about politics. It's at the end of the day, it's about people and what do we need to have safety, security, and quality of life, like at the end of the day. Right. So what does a more sustainable Omaha look like? For me, I think it's sustainable Omaha is one that is going to last beyond like five years, 10 years that we're building in mind for the future. So we have to build for sustainability, but then also continuity and growth. Um, the strong cities, uh, like the strong towns book that I've been reading talks about like, when, if you think about when we first started building cities, there were always these small little kind of hut like hut-like structures that were made, made out of wood, but they were always built because they were just kind of taking a chance that um, this area is going to be the right place to build a city. So you couldn't be too close to the river because you might flood. Um, so all of them were built with adaptability in mind. So when I think about sustainability, I think about adaptability to our changing environment. We have to look at the reality, reality that climate change is happening and that's impacting our cities. So we need to start building in mind with what are our codes need to be to make sure that we're preparing for floods. Um, I love the example of the development um, on the other side of the river for Hennepin Park, where they built in mind knowing that the Missouri River will flood. I want us, I want us to be there where we're building for the reality of the impacts of climate change in our city, but then also sustainability that this is a space where we can adapt and change for future generations what that looks like, like without us assuming and planning that this is what everybody's going to need, that understanding that we don't have control over what the future may hold, but that we can still plan and design something that can be adaptable and sustainable for future generations. Now, I just got my new trash can and recycle bin today. Uh, and so I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about, you know, waste seems like something that that comes up a lot. What is the city going to do with trash, with recycling? Uh, personally, I, I my recycling is always overfilling, but then it's just sort of like, you also want people to sort of change the way that they consume things. So there's less that you have to recycle, less that you have to throw out. And so like, I know I started composting probably six mm -hmm. or seven years ago and that apparently it just radicalized me because now I'm like, what can I get rid of? What do I not have to do? You know, I can't, I got to tell everybody to build their compost or I'll take their compost from them. So, I mean, uh, it seems like there are a lot of ways and certainly there are other cities that do a lot more to sort of address that problem. Uh, but just in terms of waste, do you have any specific ideas for what you'd want to see Omaha do? So I think we have to start to revamp the way that we even look at how we do waste. Like one of the things that was so like, groundbreaking for me that shouldn't have been but early on in my years that someone's like the phrase is reduce recycle reduce reuse recycle so we are all jumping to recycle as the number one option and we've completely skipped over reduce reuse so I think we need to start looking at a plan and I know that the city has like a recycling manager I would love for them to consider how do we broaden that to a reduction in a reuse and recycling manager. Will we just change the way that we use materials and deal with materials in our city? Like upcycling and that type of stuff, we have come so far 
from 2004 when I first started working with the Sierra Club to today. And you cannot tell me that there are not ways that as a city, we can look at how we reduce and then reuse certain materials in our waste to create a better plan so that the recycling um, doesn't have to be this huge, like, oh, we don't know what to do with it. Um, like, we have to change that. I don't have all the answers right now, but I know that there's processes and there are examples in cities all around the world. And I think we have to start thinking about ourselves as a global city, the possibility to take on those challenges and be innovative on a global scale, not just looking at like, what are we doing in Des Moines or Kansas City? But like, what are they doing in Switzerland that we can possibly look and adapt? Like, I know that there's the hesitation for us to be a pilot model city for things as much as we like to say we don't coast. We definitely do not like to be taking big risks, but there are examples that exist. So I want to see us really rethink how do we do it? And it's so funny you mentioned composting because yeah, like the moment that you compost, you're like, why is everyone not doing like, get your worm bin. Like when I heard about worm composting, I was like, we could do this. Oh, I live in an apartment and that's not like, got it. Cannot worm compost. Um, so. Well, yeah, no, it changes your view of so much. I mean, even just, I don't, I mean, even like what's biodegradable, what's not people. I'm always telling people like, oh, that's biodegradable. That's fine. I'll take that, you know? And uh, I don't know. It's this weird sort of mind expanding thing where, I mean, you're almost resistant to it because it sounds hard. And then you're, you realize at a certain point, no, 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 it's actually really easy to do a lot of these changes. You just have to get used to yeah. it. Yeah. And that's with everything. And that's like, we're so scared about change and adjusting. And I want to like give everybody a copy of that old book that was like, who moved my cheese? Uh, which is about like, how do you do change in a workplace? Because it like the moment that we get more comfortable with adapting and change, because change is the only way that we grow. And it's the only way that we're going to see true progress and really reach the goals that we want to reach in terms of economic development and sustainability and equity in our city, which the chamber is really, uh, the Greater Armand Chamber is really pushing right now. But if we can't get comfortable with just like these slight little changes, uh, like I, my favorite is watching people in the restaurants that they have, like the compost bin, the recycle bin, and then like a tiny little like rewash bin and like maybe a small trash can. And I'm like, I don't know what, and I'm like, let me help you. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I actually always will be like, oh no, 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 that one goes there, that one goes there. Cause it's okay. Cause we don't know what we don't know. And it's okay. Uh, but I think we're so afraid to acknowledge or to say, I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? But like, we are this city we, I know that I have helped so many random people in a grocery store that were trying to find something and I don't work in that grocery store. Like we are willing to help each other. And if we start to realize like, let's tap into that sense of humanity and that desire to, of philanthropy and volunteerism that many of us carry um, with us, like we can actually figure this out and it doesn't have to be uncomfortable, but that there is gonna be a certain amount of discomfort in that change. But if we are all trying to do it together, it makes it a little less scary and a little less hard. Well, then w- once you do that switch, you know, the like when you go from knowing exactly where to put everything, like what goes in the compost, what gets recycled, then when you go somewhere where there's just a trash can, you're like, I don't, I, what do I, should I take this home <laughs> I with me? I carry all of my, I carry it yeah. with me. I put it right in my purse because I like the feeling of walking and tossing something. And so I think what we need to do, and so that's where I would love, like, how do we figure out, how do we institutionalize it? because we can't just keep having, and that's where keeps the cost comes up and where it makes it expensive for certain individuals and certain businesses to invest in these practices because there's not an institutional need for it to happen for everyone. 
in like when we talk about like let's let the economy figure it out um when there's a large the supply and demand when everyone has to do it the cost of it goes down and so how do we start to figure out to make this happen in a more kind of tipping point model um where if we have certain industries that are like we are making this commitment that sustainability and equity are important for us so as an industry we're all going to buy into it's the same with books that we buy in schools let's figure out as a collaborative and stop trying to work in our silos but really look at what's a collective way that we can invest in some of these innovations it brings the cost down and then we can start to show that this is possible for everybody now we're kind of running out of time here so i just have a couple last things i want to go through which one of which is uh how are you planning on voting this year Oh, so I've already voted. You've already voted. Okay. How, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, vote like, by mail? I, and then uh, did you drop it off or did you put it in the mail? What, what did you end up doing? So I did, um, I've actually done the absentee ballot for several years now, uh, especially with just work and things and not knowing what might come up. But thankfully, I'm now at a company where we give election day off for all of our staffs because we want to make sure that they can vote. Uh, but I do the absentee ballot. And the first time I did it was because I was working um, out of town and I was going to not be in Omaha for the election. And I loved having it in advance as a super planner <laughs> person. Uh, I loved having it in advance where I could do the research and just sitting on my couch and filling out the um, answering like the questions and picking up the ballot initiatives as well as like the judges which everyone's always like how do you find decent information about the judges and i found like the american bar association does a ranking of our judges um every time there's an election so that's what i like to use but yeah so i did the mail-in ballot dropped it off in my mailbox even though there is a drop box that's just like a couple blocks away from where i live i did decide i'm gonna put that stamp on and support our U.S. Postal Service and dropped it in the mail last week. Before I let you go, what are, is there anything we didn't talk about here today that you want to make sure that the people of Omaha know? My website is Cami C-A-M-M-Y, the number four, and then council. So definitely check us out. What I really do love about what we put on our website that I don't think a lot of people use because they don't think we're really honestly asking, but we ask folks to tell us what's your vision of Omaha. And that all kind of goes along with my ideas of like, we need to know what we want to be about. I don't want to just hear what's not working, but let's figure out what we want to be. And then we figure out how do we get there. And that helps me to hear like what people's visions are, what they want to do um, to then. And it shapes, it definitely shapes our platforms. We are definitely looking at those as a living, breathing document. And the more I learn from people and the things that I see and the research that I'm doing, we're evolving those to make sure that they match Um like a bigger picture of the most inclusive idea of what the people in the city as a whole. And I definitely know that the people in district three are the ones that have to vote for me, but that my responsibility will be to this entire city. And I would love for us to get away from this like segmented, segregated Omaha. Like we cannot continue to live like this. We have to address the segregation in our city, but then also really start to think about how we plan, how we develop and how we envision equity on a, like one Omaha idea and concept. Well, I think that's a great note for us to end on. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Cami Watkins is running to represent District 3 on the Omaha City Council. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. 
You can find our backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. I'm Tom Noblock, and thank you, as always, for listening.